What's up, bingers? I've got a fantastic guest for you today. He's a music producer by trade and a philanthropist by choice. Please welcome one of the founding board members of the Innocence Project and the host of the amazing Wrongful Conviction podcast, the one and only Mr. Jason Flom. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Excellent. Well, now that Jason and I, the two technical geniuses, have uh, figured out how to record on both ends, uh, how's things? Things are good. Worst case, I was going to ask my dog if he could help, and he would have probably figured it out for us because he's smarter (laughs) than I am. Yeah. And be fair warned, uh, as you're listening to this, if the audio is bad, it's because we also, us two same knuckleheads when this is over, are going to try to figure out how to get that file, which may not work out. So you may have the... uh, the the blippy bad internet zoom audio. So Jason, thanks for taking the time to sit down with me and uh and join me on the show. I um I I thought you were a lawyer. So this is awkward. <laughs> well, I am not a lawyer. Uh you're not the only one that has that misconception. I have never claimed to be one. I in fact I try to make people aware uh that I'm definitely not a lawyer because I don't give legal advice. Because mm-hmm. I can't, right? But I am a you know I'm a passionate advocate, and I am someone who hates injustice. And um, you know I've been sort of blessed with the ability to be able to do something about it. And um, so I've spent my ever since I learned that I could have an impact on it. I've devoted a you know a significant percentage of my time throughout my adult life in doing just that. Yeah, and, and it's it's amazing all the work you've done, and I and I've listened throughout the years to some of your wrongful conviction podcast episodes, and like I said, I always just assumed you were a lawyer. I didn't know you. Went, this is how well researched I am. I didn't know that you weren't actually a lawyer until I was listening to you on Amanda's podcast on uh, Amanda Knox. I'm like, wait, what? He's a he's a a, a record producer, and and then you just. Like, because you were you were uh, one of the founding board members of the Innocence Project, right? That's right. I'm definitely not the founder, and sometimes people do mix that up as well. The founders are Barry Sheck and Peter Newfeld, two mm-hmm. great heroes of mine. Um, but I am, yes, I was the first board member, so that uh, gives me the you know illustrious or whatever you want to call it title of founding <laughs> board member. Uh, but again, not the founder. But I've been there for over a quarter century, and. You know, something I'm just extremely proud and humbled uh, to be a part of because the work that the Innocence Project does is so profoundly important on a micro and a macro level. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I haven't worked directly with the National Innocence Project, but I've done a lot of work with other state-run innocence projects connected to it. And it's, the work they do is just incredible. And the the dedication of the everybody from board members down to lawyers, the the work they do for little to nothing compared to what they could be making in private practices is really commendable. It is. And, you know, it's the, listen, um, I have a, a, you know, a famous father who was a lawyer. Uh, he's not, he's not alive anymore, but I, I have a lot of respect for the profession. I think they get a bad rap, generally speaking. And certainly there are a lot of really bad lawyers who deserve that rap. But the fact is that they are a you know indispensable uh, essential part of our society, and um, I think they deserve to be uh, treated with respect. Um, you know, it's no it's no small feat to get through law school. Although there are some lawyers who I've met who I wonder how the hell they ever got through high school, <laughs> much less law school. But and then and then passed the bar. But you know, it, I agree with you a hundred percent, and I think it's great that you've been able to work with some of the local innocence projects because. I don't know that people are generally aware that there are around 50 innocence projects around the country. Um, They they license the name the innocence project from uh, the or you know it's not like they pay for it. The the name is sort of uh, granted to them. I don't know the right term because again I'm not a lawyer. 
But uh, um, but the Innocence Project in New York is the hub, the epicenter, whatever you want to call it. And these other Innocence Projects also uh, sometimes come to us for our expertise, uh, particularly in DNA-related matters. Um, but you know, the Innocence Project in New York uh, lends assistance, um, you know, as very frequently in different cases around the country that other Innocence Projects are involved with. Um, not always, because mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, it's not asked or, or maybe not needed. But, but every one of these stories and every one of these cases, as you know so well, because the work you've done has been so meaningful in the space, every one of these is a, is a tragedy of, you know, epic proportions. And, you know, every one of these people is a human being, and every one of them had hopes and dreams and family. And, you know, it was somebody's sister, father, mother brother, cousin, you know, whatever. And, you know, they were yanked from all of that and then, you know, processed through this criminal legal system of ours into an ordeal that none of us can ever imagine. Even people like you and I who are steeped in it can't possibly imagine what they went through. That's one thing that I really like about what your podcast does in the and that, like I did say, I thought you were a lawyer, but I thought you were a very sassy lawyer, and I liked that because, like, like you you have this prowess about you where you just you 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 say it like it is, and you and you you're not afraid to to call a spade a spade and the the bad prosecutors and the bad cops that cause some of these, but also then you bring in the people oftentimes from prison. You know, the, the case we're going to talk about today is Ronnie Long. I listened to an older episode when you interviewed him prior to his exoneration. When he was still in prison and it and hopefully that I think that if everybody could really understand and like you said, nobody can really understand, but 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 have a better grasp on the fact that these are real people. You know, we get steeped into these cases and and things become facts and evidence and numbers and you forget that this person, Ronnie Long, for example, you know, in our case, we walked at eights out of prison after 20 years like that was. That was just a guy. That was a husband. It was a father. It was somebody who just missed everything. And, you know, we're looking at, you know, 20 years is too long. 44 years is too long. But it's I just don't think that we can really grasp what that means to the person that's locked up and how much of their life was stolen away. And I think you do a good job of putting that out and trying to display that to the world through the podcast. Well, yeah, thank you for that. And, you know, we're certainly, um, you know, we're fighting, uh, we're pushing the same snowball, well, different snowballs, but we're pushing the giant snowball up the hill together, right? Mm-hmm. Until I think we're going to get there, though. And I think public perceptions are changing, you know, and our respective podcasts are a part of that. And, you know, when I started the Wrongful Conviction podcast, I did it for this reason, right? Which was that I, after so many years of working, trying to help free people who don't belong in prison and to end, you know, this horrible, failed disaster of a social policy called mass incarceration, which, you know, it's worth touching on that for a second, right? Because it's a driver of these wrongful convictions, right? So, you know, America wasn't always like this, right? Our justice system has never been anything like perfect. It's always been, you know, unjust. But it was better, I would say, when we had 300,000 people in prison as opposed to two point, almost 2.3 million now, right? So what the hell happened? We didn't become more evil as a society. Crime didn't go up. Nothing really happened except that politicians found it to be expedient uh, to say that they were tough on crime and to pass tougher and tougher laws. Of course, you know, Nixon, it's now his chief aide, right, uh, Haldeman said, as I guess he's approaching the end of his life, and he came clean and he said Nixon never cared about drugs. He didn't really want a war on drugs. Nobody cared about drugs back then. Mm -hmm. But he wanted a war on Black people and hippies, and he couldn't say that out loud. So he created this phony war on drugs as a way to go after those two groups of people that he didn't like and wanted to persecute and wanted to incarcerate. And it was wildly effective. Um, you know, he created incentives for police departments. They didn't want to arrest people for drugs back then either. I know we're digressing from what we're talking about, but but the fact is that as the prison population exploded and the court systems became overwhelmed and everything, everything just became less just and more unfair. There's less 
time for lawyers to work on the cases of their indigent clients. There's less time for any of this of, of the things that are supposed to be the, the the failsafes in the system to work properly. And people after arrest just became objects to be processed into this. You know, we have we have a an a, a offshoot of our podcast called Wrongful Conviction Junk Science, which is a fabulous mm -hmm. uh, podcast hosted by my friend Josh Dubin. And on the very first episode, Chris Fabricant from the Innocence Project uh, was interviewed, and he said the you know our criminal legal system is is an efficient uh, killing machine of mostly poor people of color um, right. who are you know who are, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but this is basically what he said. So anyway, but what I thought when I started the podcast was if we could find a way to to tell these stories to to an audience of any size. And humanize uh, or destigmatize these people who have been, you know, caught up in this system for reasons they had nothing to do with. Then we can, you know, and, and in the process, educate the public as to how and why these things happen as frequently as they do, which is very, very frequently. Then hopefully we can help to prevent these things from happening with the same degree of regularity in the future. Um, and so. You know, it's had an, it's had some really incredible outcomes that I couldn't have predicted, and even still, and I know I'm on a monologue here, and it's your podcast, but the fact is that the people themselves, the people that we interview on wrongful conviction, are so extraordinary, and you know because you've listened to it, and any right. of your listeners who've heard it, no, it's it's not about me. I'm just there to help share their stories in the way that they should be told, that they deserve to be told. Yeah, and I think that your podcast does a, just a, a fantastic job of highlighting all that. So I, I was also started listening to another uh, podcast, called "Wrongful Conviction: False Confession." Does that under your your uh, under the Lava Studios uh, umbrella as well? It is, and thanks for bringing that up. I'm really proud of that one, and uh, I'm also proud to say that we were uh, "False Confessions" was nominated for two Webbies, and "Junk Science" was nominated for one as well. Or maybe the other way around. Uh, but we had three nominations between those two. We also, um, and Wrongful Conviction itself was an honoree uh, at this year's Webby. So um, it's really nice to be recognized. But False Confessions uh, is a podcast that's hosted by Laura Nyrider and Steve Drizzen, who people will probably know from Making a Murderer. Mm -hmm. um, they were the legal team for Brendan Dassey. And both brilliant lawyers who have um, been responsible for over 50 exonerations of people who falsely confessed to crimes they didn't commit. And for any members of your audience who are maybe not aware of this phenomenon of false confession, it is, I think, one of the most baffling things to the general public. Because if you go and ask, you know, the next hundred or thousand people you meet, would you ever confess to a crime you didn't commit? Not one is going to say yes. Right. But we know 29%, 29% of people who have been exonerated with DNA, right? So absolutely, positively, mm -hmm. scientifically proven to be innocent, confess to the crimes they didn't commit. And in the show, they do deep dives into different cases, as deep as you can get in the 30-minute or 40-minute format. Mm -hmm. And And... I, I think when people hear these stories, you're going to understand how these things happen as, and why they happen as frequently as they do. And it's terrifying because a false confession is really, you know, for the same reason that, we're, that I just mentioned, it's the most powerful evidence that a jury can hear, right? Because they don't, everyone on the jury thinks the same thing. Well, why the hell would they confess to a crime they didn't commit? Doesn't make any sense. Right. So. You know, and by the way, uh, let me just uh, let me just uh, sort of throw something at you here that I'm really, really excited about, which is that a few months ago, as we're sitting here now, what is it now? Uh, it's sort of mid-May, right? Um, mm -hmm. Almost mid-May um, for people who are listening somewhere in the future. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as I love that about podcasts. But anyway. The true crime binge time machine. They allow, they allow time travel, yes. But uh, so as we're sitting here in mid-May, I will say that a few months ago, I received an email from the head of the Washington State Innocence Project, um, who you may have worked with. Lara Zarowski is her name. Wonderful lawyer and a passionate advocate for the innocent. 
And she sent me an email that I'm going to frame, which said, uh, I'm on my way, dear Jason, I'm on my way to meet with Strom Peterson, a Washington state legislator who has proposed a bill that would make recording of interrogations mandatory because he listened to, and then she put in capital letters, your podcast with exclamation. That's right? awesome. And I was like, oh my God, I'm just going to melt into a puddle of tears. So the bill's going to be signed. Get ready. Drum roll, please. The bill's going to be signed on Monday. It passed um, both houses and the governor uh, has, you know, has made it clear he's going to the very good governor. I think he's a wonderful governor. Jay Inslee is going to sign that bill into law just just a few days from now. So, you know, it's really exciting. You know this feeling from your podcast because mm-hmm. you very intentionally set out to make a difference and and to actually, you know, have an impact. There aren't a lot of podcasts that that do that. A lot of great podcasts, but yours is one and and I'm, you know, very, you know, sort of uh say this as humbly as I can, you know, just very honored that uh our podcast is having that type of an impact. God knows how many, uh, you know, wrongful convictions will be prevented by the passage of that bill. You know, that's something that I, I say a lot on, on truth and justice that because, because, you know, I like you, I just, you know, I'm also not a lawyer. And so if I'm pissed off and I'll come unhinged on a, on a crooked cop or a crooked prosecutor on the, on the show. And sometimes people give me a hard time about that, but you shouldn't attack them. And, and, and what I always say is I want to do, if, if all I can do is to do my job in a way that. 10 years from now, when new detectives are in training, that they're being taught, you better do your job like some podcaster is going to spill out everything you did for the whole world to hear, then I feel like we've won. If we can if we can change the way these people are acting, even if it's just out of fear for you, me, Lauren, all these people that are out there that are going to expose them and they, they don't have the protection that they've always had for the years up till now. Yeah, listen, that's a, you know, uh, I think the best results, the best outcomes are going to be the ones we never hear about, right? The ones in exactly. some courtroom somewhere in America where some juror has listened to your show or has listened to wrongful conviction and is in that jury room and mm-hmm. is like, you know what? I'm not buying this. This sounds like that same bullshit I heard about on, you know, truth and justice or I heard about on, you know, unwrongful conviction or, or wrongful conviction, false confessions or wrongful conviction, junk science. And they're not going to vote to convict. You know, we are supposed to have a standard in this country of reasonable doubt, right? Mm. But that's out the window somehow. You know, every one of the cases we've covered, and we're now in our 12th season, right? Every one, there was enough doubt that some juror somewhere could have and should have said, you know what, this is not proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Innocent until proven guilty. All these things, right? There's that great saying, it's been said different ways. Um, I think it was originally a, an English jurist, a British jurist, who said it's better that 10 guilty men go free than that one innocent should suffer. I think Benjamin right. Franklin may have said 100 to 1. Um, I'm, I'm on that page as well. We have to be sure. And I, I want to give a, a quick admonition as well to your audience. If you're ever picked up for questioning, um, I don't care if they tell you you're a suspect or not or what. Please do me one favor and shut the fuck up. Do not say right. anything unless you have a lawyer in the room with you. And those are the words you should say, right? Your name, and I want a lawyer. And then stop talking. And, and just stop. And don't wave your Miranda rights. 85% of people wave their Miranda rights. What, don't do that. Do not wave your Miranda rights. And, and, you know, with innocent people, it's even higher, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't know the exact statistic, but it's logical, right? If you're innocent, you go in, they say, well, they're obviously just making a mistake or, or else they just want me to give them some information that might help solve a I crime. I want to help. Yeah. Right. But you don't, you're not helping. You're not helping yourself. You can, you, you can get a lawyer and then talk, you know, and you can ask, right. you can also ask, am I free to leave? If you're not under arrest, you should be free to leave. So don't think that you have to sit there because once you start talking, they can talk you in a circle that you will drown in. It's quicksand, right? It's a, it's a verbal quicksand that they get you into. And that's, and that's if they, even if they do follow the rules. Don't forget, in America, the rules say, unlike other Western countries, that the cops can lie to you in the interrogation room as much as they want right. about anything. Mm-hmm. And so we've even had cases like the Norfolk Four, right, where, um, you know, the, every one of those guys 
actually believed that they did the crime that they didn't do. By the time they were finished being, you know, boondoggled and, and you know, just browbeaten into submission, uh, so to speak, right? They actually came out of that room and said, you know, what one called his mom and said, mom, I, I don't remember doing this. I'm so sorry. I, I don't know how, could, you know, whatever. The, the guy wasn't there. He was on a ship. He was a sailor. He was on the ship. He wasn't in, even in the, mm-hmm. he wasn't even on the land. But they were able to convince him that he did. Yes. By the end of it, he actually thought that he might have done it. And don't forget in the Norfolk Four case, I mean, this was a single perpetrator crime. It was a horrible crime. Mm -hmm. This poor woman was raped and murdered in a a very gruesome crime. Awful, awful stuff. Um, And in Virginia. And they knew all along it was one person. And when the first guy, they got to confess and then hit, then the DNA proved he didn't do it. They were like, well, it must have been a second guy. So we're going to keep him here. We'll go get a second guy. Then they got him to confess. And must, nope, that DNA didn't match. Well, you'll get a third guy. And it just kept going. They arrested seven guys, none of whom were the right guy. Three of them had alibis that one guy was in a different state and could prove it. And they couldn't, you know, they couldn't even take those guys to trial. And, you know, of course, it's one of those cases, too, when the real guy confessed, they didn't want to hear it. They just didn't want to hear it. And these guys um, were forced to spend, um, I think, one the shortest time one was in for eight. I think he had testified against the other guys, even though he didn't even know the other guys. And not to judge him because God, you know, to be in that situation, it's impossible to, you know, imagine, but uh, what pressures and challenges he was facing, but, but the other guys served much longer than that. And um, it's, it's a, it's a real shame. The governor granted them, um, well, first, the first governor, I think it was Kane under huge pressure from, you know, advocates all over the world, including, I think the Pope and John Grisham and all kinds of people granted them clemency, and then Governor uh, Terry McAuliffe granted them full pardons, um, the great, great governor of the state of Virginia, who I hope, who was the last governor, and I hope will be the next governor, because in Virginia, you can't run twice in a row. Um, so, I'm, you know, I'm just going to put it right out there. I think he's a, he's a <laughs> sensational governor and person and human. So um, I think if, if he gets in, I think we're going to see some really, really great things happen. So um, there's my plug, anyway, <laughs> for people who live in Virginia. <laughs> Well, you know, it, it's it's great to see you know jumping back to when you were we were talking about the the new bill being passed with the confessions being or all interrogations being recorded like that's huge. If ever we deal with it all, I'm dealing the case I'm working on on Truth and Justice right now. Same thing. Fifteen year old girl signed a written confession that was typed by the officer. Seven hours of interrogation, not a minute of it recorded. They were in an interrogation room with cameras and audio didn't record it and it just happens all all the time so I, th- I think that's huge and your advice of of not talking and shutting the fuck up is is 100 spot on if you ask my 10 year old what do you do if you get arrested <laughs> he he, I have a, he uh, a couple months ago he got in trouble in school and had to go to the principal's office and he said well if he starts asking me questions i'm gonna tell him i want a lawyer <laughs> good good for him beat. smart kid <laughs> he's been beat into his head over and over again all my kids, you do not talk. Even if they tell you you're trying, they, they, they just want you to help them. Do not talk. All you say is lawyer. I want my parents. I want a lawyer. And can I leave? And that's it. That's it. That's it. And, I, and if, we, if we accomplish nothing else on this show today, if we can get one person you know, to follow that advice that might not have otherwise, because it's not intuitive, right? right. I mean, I think we all grew up respecting the uniform. Um, you know, I think uh, I, I, growing up as a boy in Manhattan, I think at various times I probably wanted to be a cop. It's so long ago now I can't remember. Yeah. But, you know, they're, they're very imperfect people. Um, and, you know, they, they make uh, mistakes uh, like anybody else. And they also, unfortunately, there are, you know, a significant number of them that are willing to bend and break the rules. Um, in order to accomplish what? I don't know. It's, it's, you know, it's a disaster on every level, uh, you know, forgetting the, the human catastrophe and the toll that it takes on, on these people and their families. But it's also a public safety disaster, right? And it, it's always puzzling to me that people are, you know, so willing to, you know, arrest, uh, prosecute and convict the wrong person, even when they know it's the wrong person. Knowing that that in turn means that the other person, the person who actually committed the crime, is free, will remain right. free. 
and may well like the Michael Morton case, right? I interviewed Michael uh, on my podcast. Uh, Michael was in prison in Texas for 24 years and seven months, as he says, 24-7, you know, for the murder of his own wife, who was beaten to death, savagely beaten to death when he was at work. And the prosecutor withheld three critical pieces of evidence, any one of which would have been enough for any jury to look at and go, whoa, this can't be the guy. But right. he, he had that all those things he had in his possession and he withheld them. And it took 24 years and seven months for the truth to come to light. And meanwhile, the real killer, in uh, not that long after this awful murder, down the road, you know, several miles away, did the same thing to another one. Right. And, and, and her family and her fate was sealed when they stopped looking for the guy who actually did it because they were like, eh, the convenient guy is the husband. Let's just pick him. He was, the, right. he was a law abiding guy, supermarket manager, as he says, a normal guy living a normal life. And I think it was Austin, Texas, like just as normal and normal or suburb of Austin, normal as normal could be. Never been in trouble of any kind. You know, this is a guy who probably never had a parking ticket. They had a four year old. And uh, yeah, and that kid had to grow up without his father. I had to grow up believing that his father murdered his mother. I mean, like, it, it, you know, it just goes on and on. But so, yeah, I, I don't I don't get it. Um, I never will understand how, uh, what what it is that what what wires have to be crossed in somebody's brain and in their soul to make them, you know, do these these awful, awful things uh, that are in, in in often as bad as the crime itself. You know, so it's like. Uh, it's, um, but look, what can we do? I can't, you know, I can't, um, I can't figure that out. I'm not going to figure it out, but what we can do is we can help to prevent that, uh, or, or make it more difficult for bad actors to do the things as you were just saying before, right. For bad actors to do the things that they do. Uh, and they happen and they happen in courtrooms every day across this country, every, not every courtroom every day, but every day in every state, this shit is going on. And and you, by the way, you listeners can be a part of the solution. And the simplest ways to do that is, number one, when you get that annoying jury duty notice, don't throw it away, right? Right. Go show up and serve on jury duty and be woke, right? And, and, and remember the things that you're hearing. And if you hear, oh, somebody confessed, that you, you still have to look for corroborating evidence, right? And if just because somebody's up there, like on our junk science, wrongful conviction junk science show, You'll hear about the various things that every day in courtrooms across the country are passed off as science that aren't like blood spatter analysis, right? Like, um, you know, arson, like shaken baby syndrome. Uh, oh, the, the fingerprint episode is amazing. I listened to it again the other day. I would bet that 99% of your listeners think fingerprints are, you know, more or less an exact science, but they're absolutely yeah. not. They're, su they're subject to, well, judgment calls across the board. And think about it this way, right? So if you take your fingerprint and you take an ink pad and you push it down like you see on TV, right? And then you take it and you do it again on another ink pad, it's going to look the same. And with a microscope, you can tell that that's your fingerprint. But now take into account that fingerprints are, you know, if, let's say it's on somebody's neck, somebody was strangled, right? It's a partial fingerprint. It doesn't take into account whether the hand was oily, whether the neck was sweaty, whether the thing was this or that. The body temperature could change. Everything, all that stuff is out the window. First of all, that somebody has to make a judgment. Is that fingerprint even worth examining? Mm -hmm. the, the examiner themselves may very well be unqualified because there aren't stringent requirements for becoming any of these, almost any of these sciences, right? You can, you can take a 40-hour class and become a blood right. spatter expert 40 hours right and and no one's ever failed <laughs> right <laughs> 16 years in the fire service i've taken a lot of classes uh, that no one's ever failed those government uh classes work exactly like that like sit there drink your coffee and you get a certificate at the end so and by the way there are two more things i want to say on this subject so on the on the wrongful conviction junk science on the fingerprint episode that we did one of the most incredible stories is the one about the Madrid bombings, right? So mm -hmm. some of you, many people are old enough to remember, I don't remember what year it was, but it wasn't that long ago. There was one horrible day in Madrid where I think eight, a number of different trains were bombed. 
And a huge number of people were killed. I don't remember if it was 190 people. It was a big, big, big number. Catastrophe, mm-hmm. right? International manhunt. They found a partial fingerprint on one of the bomb, you know, pieces, parts, whatever. And they traced it to a man living in Oregon, in America, who had uh, recently converted to Islam. And they thought they had their guy, right? So the FBI assigned their top experts, obviously. And three of them said with absolute certainty, this is the guy. Yep, we got him. Well, there were a couple of problems. One was he didn't have a passport. Two was he had never been outside the United States in his life. He was a lawyer, by the way. Not that that means that you couldn't do something terrible, but it makes it less likely, I think. And so the FBI continued to insist that this was the guy. And the Spanish authorities finally said, fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, but but imagine like they were prepared to extradite him and, and to prosecute it like, he he had never left the country. He's not a ghost. He couldn't, you know, time travel, transport himself magically overseas without, you know. So obviously he wasn't the guy. But but this is the point I'm making is these were three of the top experts who were doing their I, I have to believe they were doing their level best to solve a, one of the worst crimes in history. Right. But he wasn't the guy. So I don't know if they ever did catch the guy in that case. But the only thing I wanted to point out, and this is this is breaking news. Right. So there was a study conducted uh, recently, just was published actually, where I think 130, over 130 medical examiners were given, I don't know if you've heard about this yet, it's brand, it, mm-hmm. this only happened in recent weeks. So 130 or 133, I can't remember, medical examiners were given the same exact piece of inf- pieces of information. A three-year-old boy had died in the hospital with some sort of head trauma. They gave each of these guys, the same information, the blood, the thing, the thing, whatever, all the x-rays, every type of medical stuff that they had, they were all given the exact same set of information, except right. half of them were told that the toddler was a white child who was brought to the hospital by his grandfather. And the other half were told that it was a black child who had been brought to the hospital by his mother's boyfriend. And these medical examiners were four times more likely to rule it a homicide with the second set of facts. So what does that tell you? Like, and, and I want, again, I'm, I'm saying this for very, very specific purpose, right? Which is that I want your listeners to consider that when they go serve on a jury and someone's life literally is in their hands and you and I should we'll do the same, I'm sure. And just think about the fact that these medical examiners were not objective actors, right? They, they, they were four times more likely to rule it a homicide just because the race of the child. Because they're looking at the evidence through whichever lens they were given, and it changed the outcome. And this works across the board, right? Every mm-hmm. type of science is affected by, you know, and this goes to lineups and it goes to more mundane things like that, right? If the person conducting the lineup knows who the suspect is, right? Or who they think the person is that did it. And they're, they're, they're either consciously or subconsciously probably going to steer the witness to, you know, to identify that person. And it's true in what we would hope would be much more objective things like with laboratory and lab coats and things you see on CSI or all this shit, right? right? It would be nice. It would be nice if they were objective, but they're not, they're, they're humans. And they're subject to their own biases, and those have terrible outcomes in courts. Um, and so we, as uh, as you know, the, the really the last um, you know the last stop on the train is the jury, right? People can't get convicted without a jury. So if you're on a jury, you know you should you should go in. And my friend Josh Dubin, you know, again the the host of the Junk Science Wrongful Conviction Junk Science podcast, he's a jury consultant and brilliant, brilliant guy. And, and, you know, he did a study that showed that people, 80% of people have a uh, preconceived notion that if someone is in the defendant's chair, they must be guilty because otherwise, why would they right. be there? Right. You see that all, all the time, you know, our entire system is built around on paper, 
that the the state is the underdog, right? It's so crazy to think about that. You know, they, they get to present their case first. They get their their final closing arguments because there's a presumption of innocence and they're the underdog. But that's such bullshit because what's never factored into that is just human behavior. If someone's sitting in a jury box and seeing somebody brought in in shackles and a uniformed police officer saying that they think they're guilty, it's it's like the, the Constitution is written as though that's not supposed to affect a juror's preconceived notion of the innocence or guilt of the defendant sitting in the sitting in the defendant seat. No, in fact, it's it's exactly opposite of what you you know what you just talked about, right? That people have this notion that the prosecution and the government are the underdogs. In fact, it's it's not even a it's not a fair fight in any way. The government right. has all the cards, mm-hmm. and as a as an indigent defendant in this country, you know you're entitled to a lawyer. But you know the the, the high court in Texas years ago ruled in a case where a guy appealed his conviction because his lawyer had been asleep for you know, a large percentage of the trial. And the court ruled two to one that the constitution guarantees you the right to an attorney, but not necessarily one that's awake. And it's like, that's, you know, that's one example, but there's so many examples of attorneys who are uh, drunk, uh, mm-hmm. unprepared, you know, they're also going through their own life stresses, right? And being a public defender is a hell of a tough way to make a living. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't excuse you for showing up in court you know, and just processing your client into prison. You know, uh, New Orleans 60 Minutes did a great piece about the public defenders in New Orleans uh, where they found that they were doing an average of about 400 cases a year, each of them, right? Mm -hmm. So when you consider that courts aren't open on weekends, that's, you know, damn near two a day, right? A day. They're just shoving them down the, the plea bargain conveyor belt. That's that's it. And that's why, you know, 97, I think, percent of felony convictions in the United States are a result of plea bargains because, you know, so many people make this a Sophie's choice. Right. You're sitting there and you're going, well, um, fuck, what do I do? Like my lawyer doesn't even know my name. Right. Mm -hmm. Much less anything about the case. And the government's going to parade out these supposed experts and they're going to do this and they're going to do that. And the prosecutor is saying, listen, you know, listen, schmuck, you're going to get, you know, 50 years if you go to trial, but I'm offering you three right now, you know, right. Take it or leave it. And you go and you've seen what's happened, if, you know, particularly if you're from a poor neighborhood, you've seen what's happened to other people in that situation. And you go, you know what? Fuck it. I'll take it because I, I can't take my chances. I'll spend the rest of my life in jail. I have kids. I have, you know, whatever. Whatever it is, I mean, and so, in fact, it's important for everyone to recognize that the system is, in fact, stacked, but it's stacked against the defendant in, in you know, uh, in almost every case, um, because such a small percentage of defendants are able to afford an attorney who can, you know, who can mount a, a fair fight, you know. So, yeah, yeah I agree. And, and that's something and I don't know how I know we're supposed to talk about a case today, but this is more interesting to me. Um, <laughs> the, the discussion we're having, but that's like, like, how do we change that? Because you, what you just said is, is exactly the point I was making too, that the, the deck is stacked so heavily in the, in the, in favor of the prosecution. And yet the, the, the trial procedures are designed as though they're the underdog, you know, that they get to present their case first and that, they, you know, just, just, just all the way down the line, it's, it's written as though. The, the defense has the easy job, but it's exactly the other way around. And somehow that's got to get fixed. And I don't know how to fix it, but somehow it's got to get fixed. Well, we're, we're working on that right now, right? Change, we change hearts and minds. And ultimately, people mm-hmm. start to come around to the idea that just because you're being told X, Y, or Z by a prosecutor or a cop or a supposed expert, um, that doesn't necessarily make it so. And, and the, more, the more we can drill that home, the better off and, and the safer we're all going to be. And that's the paradox of all of this is that, you know, you and I are not against public safety. In fact, we're in favor of it, right? I mean, all of us right. really want to live in a, in a safe society, but locking up the wrong person um, is, not, is not the way to go about doing that. And locking up, you know, entire generations of people of color is not the way to do that either. You know, like, we need right. to we need to stop doing this. You know, we lock up 
we lock up our, our own citizens, right? American citizens at five times the rate per capita of the rest of the Western world, 14 times the rate of Japan. And I know these are a lot of statistics, but think about this. We have 25% of the world's prison population, but we only have 4.4% of the world's population. And with women, it's even worse. We have 33% of the world's female prison population. That's insane. And I think I heard some crazy statistic too. Don't quote me on this one. We can look it up to make sure. But I think something like 80% of the women in prison are mothers, right? So what does that do, right? What, what is that doing to the families? And and so many of them are in there for nonviolent drug crimes. It's like, what, right. what, what are we doing? It's insane. And then one last one I'll throw at you, right? I know this is a lot and this is not a college course that we're teaching, but um, although maybe we should, um, right. but the, you know, we, and every time I say this, I say, Flom, you sound crazy when you say this, right? But then I go and check it and it's still true. And then I say it again, because it's true. We lock black people up in America at six times the rate of South Africa during apartheid. Full stop. Like, that's it. Like, right there, we got to go, okay, okay, America, stop. Just stop doing that. That's no That's no good. No No bueno. No, not okay. Right. Nothing okay about that. It should offend every single person's sensibility. And by the way, we should talk about Ronnie Long's case because it highlights a, a lot of these things. Give us kind of the beats of, beats of Ronnie's case, and, and we'll dig into it. So Ronnie's case... 1976. Jesus Christ. 1976. It's such a long time ago. In Concord, North Carolina, a woman, 50-something-year-old woman, was uh, her, her home was broken into, and she was robbed and raped, brutally raped. Um, she fought her attacker. She fought so hard, her nails were bent backwards, they said. So there's a lot of evidence left at the crime scene. And she was the widow of a local uh, executive at this uh, big firm, big employer in the area called Cannon Mills, which made it an even higher profile case. White woman attacked by a black man, North Carolina, right in the South, local executive, very high profile case. They decided to go after this guy, Ronnie Long. Why? Because he had talked back to an officer. That was his big crime, right? One day he had been walking on the street. Some officer accosted him uh, just because he said he was not walking in the right neighborhood. And he said, I'm just walking on the sidewalk. And, you know, he said something, you know, why are you, why are you harassing? Whatever he said, right? Said something to the officer that that officer took umbrage with, right? So he was in the crosshairs. So they pick Ronnie up for trespassing in a park. Okay, let's just sit on that one for a second, right? Trespassing in a public park. Right. They pick him up for trespassing <laughs> in a public park. So he has to go to court to make a court appearance for trespassing in a public park. I guess uh, walking in the park while black or whatever. So mm -hmm. what happens next is quite extraordinary. They brought the victim of this awful crime into the courtroom in disguise because they told her your attacker is going to be in the courtroom today. We're not going to tell you who it is, mm -hmm. but there were only 12 black people that were in the courtroom that day. They sat her in the court and, and many of them were too old or too young or didn't fit right. the description whatsoever. She sat there for almost two hours and didn't identify anybody until Ronnie got up to make his plea. Right. And I think they gave her some sort of a nudge or whatever. Right. And she finally said that might be, he didn't match the description, right? She had described her attacker as having uh, what they called uh, yellowish type of skin, yellow black. Um, there, there was uh, a light skin. Yeah. Yeah. And he is a dark skinned black man. Uh, he wasn't the right height. He didn't have um, facial hair, which the attacker did. He didn't have any scratches on his body or any on his clothing or anything. Oh, he had had a, a black leather jacket. That's the only evidence they had against him that the attacker was supposedly had a black leather jacket. Mm -hmm. And from there, they proceeded to plant evidence in his car, searched his car without his permission, then lied to him about what he was signing when they made him sign the document that said that he, they were allowed to search his car. So they planted evidence in his car. They withheld the evidence from the crime scene. Now get this. Okay. So they had done a full analysis of the crime scene. They actually did their job. They, they went in with a team of people. They searched, they collected, they bagged, they cataloged, they everything, hair, blood, skin cells, all the stuff. Right. And none of it matched Ron. So they had, so they hit it. 
Right. They hid all of that evidence, right. not just from the defense lawyer, though. The cops hid it from the prosecutor. They didn't even share the evidence with the fucking prosecutor because the prosecutor, even back then, even in a case like this, might have said, you know what? You guys got to give me something to go on here besides a black right. leather jacket, right? You got, yeah. it, 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 a lot of people have black leather jackets, but they withheld all that shit. So, Ronnie went to trial on this flimsiest of evidence that you could ever imagine. This sort of semi-coerced identific- identification. And imagine this poor woman sitting in the courtroom for two hours, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so scared that she's in a disguise because she may be recognized by her attacker. And then being fed this information that he was the guy when in fact he wasn't. And they had every reason to know that. And then all the rest of the stuff adds up. I'm leaving out some of the other misdeeds. His lawyer was not competent. And Ronnie was convicted and would have been sentenced to death, except that the, the, uh, the state of North Carolina a few months earlier had abolished the death penalty for rape. So he was sentenced to life without parole, I believe was the sentence. And at the time I interviewed him in prison, he had been in for 44 years 40 yeah it was 2010 when i conducted that interview he had been in for 44 years that's probably longer than you've been alive if i have to guess you don't look 44 i'm just right there but i'm under it i'm i'm still under the 44 right so he went to prison before <laughs> you were born um mm-hmm. and you know the the good news is if there could be any good news in a case as awful as this that the system finally corrected itself Uh, a federal judge made one of the strongest statements i've ever heard you can hear it if you listen to the podcast it's it's wrongful conviction uh just look up then scroll until you get to the ronnie long episode or search however you wherever you listen to your podcast um but the federal judge made a statement saying that this evidence that was withheld was evidence that any lawyer in any courtroom in the history of america would have wanted to have access to to defend his client but it was denied to the defendant, to the lawyer, and even to the prosecutors by the cops because they were so hell-bent on convicting the wrong guy for this awful right. crime. So, which, of course, again, meant that the actual guy, who was a, obviously a person that needed to be brought to justice, right. was free to commit other heinous crimes if he so chose. Um, I don't know what eventually happened to that person because I don't know if we'll ever know who it really was. But we know who it wasn't, and they knew who it wasn't, and it wasn't right. Ronnie Long. So. Anyway, the only good news is that Ronnie was freed just uh, weeks or a couple months after the podcast aired. Um, I spoke with him right after he got out, and he was obviously overjoyed. Um, 63-year-old man. He was 19, if you imagine that, when he was convicted, 19 years old, and um, had all sorts of, you know, prospects i think he was i think he was trying to make it as a professional athlete um if i'm not mistaken but uh all of that was obviously snatched away but he told me at the time that um he he thanked me for the uh, the podcast having done the podcast and um i said oh yeah no listen I'm, I'm you know that's what we're here for and he said well you know it really helped me get out of prison and I said, well, it's, I, I'm, you know, it's, I mean, it's wonderful that you feel that way. And he goes, no, I don't feel that way. He said, I know that to be true. And, um, you know, I don't, I'll have to find out, because uh, I didn't ask him because I was in such a, you know, state of just like awe. And, you know, I was just so overjoyed to be talking to him as a free man. So I don't know who or, or who or were the people that told him that, but he, he said it with, authority that he had been told by people who know that this um, podcast of ours, this wrongful conviction episode had reached someone with the power to, you know, make decisions who had um, helped him to win his freedom. I don't doubt that at all. Yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, it's really an awesome, awesome thing. Um, I think for your listeners and you've heard Bob, talk about it or you've heard it on the show you know the the feeling of helping to extricate somebody from this you know unimaginable nightmare is just uh it's one of the best feelings in the world and i hope that um some of our listeners our respective listeners will get to share that joy 
that some of them are sure are going to law school and doing other great things. And some of them will become prosecutors and I hope they'll become good prosecutors. You know, I always right. encourage kids when I speak at law schools to, 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 to look at that. And I say, if you're woke and you're a smart kid, you know, we need good prosecutors out there and we need, and by the way, that's another thing I want to say, please vote. Everybody vote. We have such important races going on. Um, well, right now, by the time this airs, some of them I won't talk about it because they'll already be done. But we we need to elect progressive prosecutors around this country. We have some phenomenal ones like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, like Chesa Boudin in San Francisco. Um, there, there are Jason Williams in New Orleans, who was an underdog candidate who won uh, in a runoff recently and who, you know, he freed 22 people in one day down there. I mean, that's the power of the office. Right. And, and then the ones that, and, and when I say the 22 people, these were people who were convicted by non-unanimous juries, right. Which is no right. longer legal in any, anywhere in the country. Uh, the Supreme court said it's not legal. These were people who had very strong claims of innocence who were convicted by non-unanimous juries. What the actual fuck right. is that? Right? I, I, I don't unbelievable. I, yeah. And and it's very simple, right? The origin behind non-unanimous juries was pure racism, right? When when right. black when black people were given the right to serve on juries, the white people, and not just in the South, but largely in the South, came up with this idea that if they they uh Pass laws allowing non-unanimous jury verdicts. Then, if one or two people of color ended up on a on a jury, their votes wouldn't matter if right. the white people wanted to vote to convict. So, finally, this has been uh, abolished. It was, uh, uh, yeah, it's 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 it was abolished, but not retroactively. Um, the last two states were Oregon and oddly Oregon, which I think a lot of people think is a liberal state, and Louisiana. So, yeah, so the so the local. DA's races. That's the other most important thing we're going to talk about today is please vote in your local DA's races. A lot of people don't even know DA's are elected, um, right. but it is an elected position. Um, in Manhattan right now, there's a big DA's race uh, going on. A lot of candidates. Um, I think Alvin Bragg is the best guy by far. Alvin Bragg is a man who was uh, grew up in Harlem, still lives in Harlem. You know, in New York City, we've never had any prosecutor who wasn't a white male in over 200 years 38 in a row really yeah and we've only had four prosecutors in the last hundred years in manhattan right because it's sort of a position that once they, people seem to just you know stay in that position for a long long time right so it's a really important race and, and alvin bragg is a man who was uh you know like i said grew up in harlem was a victim of uh police uh, violence uh, on three occasions went to harvard and harvard law school became a federal prosecutor and he was a good prosecutor. I think everyone in the justice community knows that he was a good and fair, tough, but fair and honest uh, prosecutor. And that's how he'll be as DA as well. I mean, here's a man who, you know, who cares about his, you know, cares about the, the citizens of the city, but is not going to bend the rules and is not going to allow others to bend the rules and break the rules. And do the type of things that we talk about on our respective shows that lead to these wrongful convictions. So I think it's a really important race. And um, it's, uh, Jesus, I should look up the date. This episode will air last week of May. So they'll have, they'll have time. But, you know, that's a, it's a great point that, you know, not only to get out and vote, but, you know, the, the up and coming lawyers, you know, that we think of the prosecutors as the bad guys a lot of times in the, which I also want to quickly pr point out, we're, we're almost done here, but, uh, Another cool thing you do on your podcast is you have wrongful conviction episodes and then you have righteous convic conviction episodes as well, uh, which, to be honest with you, I haven't heard any of the righteous ones. I'm always listening to the wrongful ones. But I assume that what's happening there is you're highlighting a case where the system did get it right. Um, actually, oh, by the way, let me just go back. Let me backtrack for a second. So the, um, the New York the Manhattan DA's race is June 22nd. So you mm -hmm. still have time to vote. I think by the time this airs, early voting will be up. Um, let me just double check that. Um, it is a hugely important race. And I urge people to get out and vote and vote for Alvin Bragg um, because it's about time in a city, in a, in a borough, Manhattan, where 50% of arrests are people of color, even though 
they represent less than 20% of the population. Mm-hmm. It, it's high time that we had a, uh, a black person. Um, the right person happens to be a black person. Let me make that clear. It's not, I'm not saying this because of he is any particular race or nationality, but because he's a good man, he's brilliant, he's fair, and he's still going to be tough, uh, and he's going to make New York City safer. And so uh, June 22nd is the, is, the, um, is the race itself. It's the primary, but the primary in Manhattan basically means everything because it is it's, the it's gonna, no, no Republican's going to win the Manhattan DA's race. Right, so right. it is the election, yes, and it's very, very important. So, but yeah, so back to what you were saying. So righteous convictions is, uh, I couldn't resist the play on words, right? Wrong. Yeah. The righteous. righteous convictions basically is a show where I get the uh, privilege of interviewing people who are doing righteous things for no reason other than that they can. Um, so I interview people from all different walks of life. I have interviewed a couple of progressive DAs, uh, Jason Williams from New Orleans and um, Kim Fox from Chicago. And I will be interviewing Chesa Boudin from San Francisco. But I've also interviewed Senator Dick Durbin, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. I interviewed him as he was on his way down the hall to go be sworn yeah. in. And I've interviewed people from Oh, I interviewed Rabia Chaudhry, um, who you you probably know, and mm-hmm. listeners probably know from Serial and Undisclosed. Uh, I interviewed Seth Godin. He's just a really brilliant, brilliant guy, um, author and speaker. And I've interviewed, uh, just interviewed Mike Novogratz, you know, the philanthropist, um, who's the sponsor of the bail fund, the National Bail Fund. So just people from all, all different walks of life. I just interviewed Ennis Cantor, the center from the, I guess he's on the Blazers now, right? He used to be on the Celtics, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But he's, you know, his father was, was, well, he's wrongfully convicted in absentia in Turkey. Right. Actually, no, what am I saying? I interviewed him on wrongful, not on righteous. I'm confusing myself. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah. So it's, it's really, it's, it's a fun show for me. I hope people enjoy it as much as I do. I love interviewing these people who are doing such incredible stuff. Scott Heckinger, the fabulous public defender from Brooklyn, uh, who now has this project called Zealous. Yeah, I'm interviewing uh, people just from all different walks of life. Um, I just interviewed Sister Helen Prejean, the nun, uh, who's the most um, phenomenal uh, death penalty abolitionist and advocate um who you know from dead man walking um so yeah it's uh i should really be interviewing you you're doing a bunch of righteous shit out there you may you may have to come on the show (laughs) we'll turn we're gonna turn the tables on you (laughs) well and and to be clear everybody for the the righteous conviction that is under so you you can subscribe to the the wrongful conviction podcast and those are episodes within wrongful conviction yep you'll you'll get it in your feed yep yep so you don't got to go searching for anything else it more of your wrongful conviction world. I've actually already spoken with Lauren, uh, who hosts uh, one of the hosts from Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions, uh, and I'm setting up an interview with her, so she'll be coming up. I'm gonna have to get in touch, and maybe you can help me get in touch with Josh to do the uh, the Junk Science Show too, because all this stuff just fascinates me, and, and they're all doing doing fantastic work, obviously yourself included. And with that, we're gonna go ahead and wrap things up. His name is Jason Flom. The podcast is called Wrongful Conviction. Check it out. You will not be disappointed. It will definitely be your next big true crime binge. Thanks so much, Jason, for joining me. Thanks again. Um, It's really an honor to be here. And thanks for all the great work that you're doing. And thanks to your listeners, by the way, because your listeners are really part of the solution, right? They're out there doing the work day in and day out and helping to free innocent people. So, yeah, so respect to all of you. Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We 
can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.